I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, this time shifting our focus to the Anti-Defamation League, which has been out in full force lately since the October 7th attack by Hamas and the subsequent bombing of Gaza by Israel in retaliation. Joining us is... Amaya Gelman, who I mistakenly referred to as Emma Gelman. My apologies, Amaya. She is currently writing a book about the history of the ADL, which includes some unsavory details, such as activities like spying on Arab Americans. She's also the author of a 2019 Boston Review article entitled, The ADL is Not What It Seems. Amaya was very short on time, so we only got uh, about 22 minutes of discussion about her piece and her thoughts on the ADL, and why she believes there are better civil rights movements out there than the ADL. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Amaya Gelman. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to be speaking with, Emma Gelman. She's the author of a piece entitled, The Anti-Defamation League is Not What It Seems. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm suffering from uh, the agonies of genocide, but apart from that, perfectly well. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the recent going on, goings-on with the ADL. The ADL uh, fashions itself as a group that is combating hate 
and things like white supremacy. Uh, but you are saying, well, it's it's not that simple. And I think a lot of people are starting to get, uh, how should I put this, a little perturbed by the ADL. We just had a senior official there basically resign in protest to Jonathan Greenblatt's approach uh, to this whole situation with Gaza. Uh, what, what's your basic analysis so far? Well, I'm a historian um, and I look at how we how the things that are happening now have roots and explanations that begin much earlier. So the ADL is in the present often understood as a civil rights organization because it says that it is and because it talks about things like uh, bias and anti-Semitism and, and then also it sort of tacks on to that, like, oh, we're also about, um, you know, fighting discrimination against Muslims and against Black people and queers, et cetera. In fact, um, the ADL has a much bigger set of politics than civil rights. Civil rights work has in, has for sure always been part of uh, what the ADL has done, but that doesn't make it a progressive or an anti-racist organization. Um, the civil rights work that the ADL has done um, focus has focused, for example, on housing discrimination, employment discrimination, um, what is called in the world of anti-racism, formal rights, as opposed to trying to make things truly, um, truly fair, truly equal, and to empower um, or to provide uh, like full self-determination for people, uh, regardless of their um, conformity. So, for example, the ADL has always been opposed to civil rights movements and civil rights organizing that it considers too unruly or um, too asking too much, too many rights. So it has been a long time um, uh, antagonist of Black-led civil rights organizing and uh, and ever since 1968, really, when, um, when civil rights organizing moved from uh, sort of being like, we, we want to be able to vote without being killed to we want the right to organize our communities ourselves and have our kids learn from teachers who are um, who value them and value Blackness, et cetera. Like that, from that point on, the ADL was not down with that. So in short, the the version of civil rights that is associated with sort of big mainstream organizations like the ADL is a fairly restricted um, version that maintains order, that as long as people behave in a, in a way that doesn't disrupt, say, capitalism, doesn't disrupt the existing arrangements of power, they'll support it. And that's what we see when the ADL starts attacking not only Palestinians, which it has, has forever attacked, but also, for example, Jewish organizers who are trying to advocate against genocide and for Palestinian rights. So the ADL, the fundamental diagnosis, if this is a, a helpful shorthand, is that the ADL is a conservative organization. It does some civil rights work, but fundamentally its aims are preserving power, preserving white supremacy, and maintaining militarism. So that's a long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think, could you talk a little bit about uh, the ADL in regards to things like Islamophobia. And I, I have to note, too, uh, I've, I've had another guest on, um, Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy. He's done a lot of FOIA work on the ADL's targeting of Arab American, you know, activist groups. So it seems like there's a long history 
of not just Islamophobia, but just the the targeting by the ADL of Arab Americans? The ADL started targeting Arab Americans in the 1950s. Um, wow, the that's ADL- a long history. It is a long trajectory. And in fact, it starts before Arab Americans had developed an a, you know, an ethnic politics in the U.S. in the way that we kind of understand how politics works. You know, politics in the U.S. is kind of interest group based. People form um, political like lines of political power, often around their um, their race or ethnicity or their or immigrant communities. And um, in the 1950s, the um, the ADL started to take up against Arab Arab Americans and also Arabs more broadly because uh, they had started to resist colonialism. They, they had been resisting British colonialism. And they, then when the state of Israel was formed and colonialism was handed off to the Jewish state um, and sort of married with this idea of, of Jewish liberation, Arab, uh, Arab countries and, um, and activists started coming to the United States to try and explain what was going on because they could see that the funding for the Israeli project was coming from the US. So they just literally started to try and educate people on what was actually happening there. And the ADL and also the American Jewish Committee took up to try and stop them from doing that. As they went forward and Arab Americans developed a sort of local ethnic politics, the ADL continued to attack them saying, that anytime that a politician would would meet with them or you know try and hear out their um their needs and interests that that politician would get attacked as taking uh arab oil money for example as if there was no possibility that arab americans could have or should have the right to representation real, real quick in that regard that's very interesting because you know i i think a lot of times there's a trope that comes up with anti-semitism this idea of dual loyalties. But that trope you're saying is also used by the ADL against Arab Americans. You're so right. It is a mirror image. I I think the idea of dual loyalty is, uh, you know, it's kind of a dangerous one anyway, because first of all, I mean, the immigrant populations in the United States historically are very interested in the politics of their home places and are very affected by them. Um, so the idea that saying that Jews are interested, um, you know, in uh, in politics that are happening for Jews elsewhere is um, is a problem like that. That doesn't make sense in the context of U.S. politics. But it, it is particularly egregious when you have an organization like the ADL saying that Zionism is endemic to Jewish identity, which, by the way, many of us don't agree with. I am Jewish and I am not a Zionist. And I, no, I, I, I was I, just going to say Greenblatt just came out and said uh you know, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. He, I mean, he really brutally, in my view, attacked Jewish Voice for Peace and if not now activists and said, you know, they're the mere inverse of white supremacists, which I don't even know what he means by that. But it's it's really kind of chilling that he is attacking Jewish Americans for having a difference of viewpoint. This is not a new tactic by the ADL. Um, again, you know, I'm always turning to the history, but in the 1950s, when we off, you often hear about the story of U.S. Jewry as a story of like labor organizing and leftist organizing, and then there's a moment where it dissipates, right? Well, why did it disappear? In the 1950s and the throes of the Cold War, the organizations that kind of held the purse strings and the institutional infrastructure 
um, of the Jewish community, which were anti-communist conservative organizations, and they did a purge. They just purged all the leftist Jews from their organizations. They purged them from their jobs and, and as social workers and Jewish social service agencies. They they shut the whole thing down. So this is not a new attack on Jews who don't fall into line with the views of the ADL. And I want to be clear, it's not just the ADL. It's a larger institutional infrastructure that has very deep historic roots. Lots of immigrant communities have that where it's the elites, the wealthy people who set up institutions and they use them to try and contain everybody else. Since 1979, the ADL has been producing an annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents. I understand that there's some criticisms of how the ADL uh, comes up with this, this data. Could you speak to that? The ADL's data on um, anti-Semitic incidents has been super opaque for a really long time. It's been very important to their strategy to um, to say anti-Semitism is on the rise. And literally, at one point, I tried to track, you know, is there are there any years where they didn't say anti-Semitism is on the rise? There were, I think, like two years in the 80s where they where they didn't say that. So if anti-Semitism has been on the rise since they began tracking it in the 70s. Like, how are we, how are any of us still here? <laughs> I wonder. Um, the The data has been very opaque. And in recent years, they have tried to, I think, respond to that criticism by, um, by making more assertions, like, you know, by sort of slicing and dicing a little bit. But one thing that has become very clear is that the ADL is counting anti-Israel sentiment protests expressions, including by Jews, as anti-Semitic incidents. So when they say that anti-Semitic incidents have increased by 400% since October 7th, which I believe is what they're saying, what I, it seems pretty clear that much of what they're referring to is anti-genocide protests. They're, the ADL is saying that protesting genocide and protesting apartheid is anti-Jewish, which to me is like the most anti-Semitic thing that they could assert. My well, Jewish it, it, not to Not to interrupt you, uh, but it, it's like when, um, you know, I keep hearing from right wing sources, they'll often call these uh, Palestinian protests, they'll call them the pro Hamas protests. And I, I'd like to know, how do you know everyone there made some pro Hamas statement? A lot of these people are just protesting the college kids, many of whom are Jewish. That's the the, the big thing people don't realize. A lot of uh, college campus activism in favor of Palestinians is done by American Jewish students. Uh, I'd like to know, where do these people have uh, the data saying, oh, all these people support Hamas? You know? You're right. There's an enormous amount of um, like ventriloquizing of the protesters. So I went that the Times Square protest that was um, supposedly endorsing Hamas and that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez even denounced because supposedly like there was, you know, support for Hamas. I was there. I was there with my partner and my kids. And I want to tell you, there were a lot of Jews on that march and there was nobody saying hooray Hamas. So it's really just a matter of what label can be attached from a distance to protests that don't serve the political aims of the of the forces that are denouncing them. I also, as you mentioned, a lot of the students who are doing the organizing that the ADL wants to condemn are Jewish. So for example, Students for Justice in Palestine at the college where I teach was asked, uh, are you in contact with Jewish student groups as you do this? And their answer was, we are the Jewish students. What are you talking about? So this dichotomy, this idea 
that somehow the students who are supporting Palestine are not identifiably Jewish just doesn't make any sense. And the, their whole argument falls apart when you get there. I know we only have a few more minutes here, but um, in terms of the ADL's political connections, I think a lot of people have hailed their work, uh, you know, against, you know, exposing neo-Nazis and things like that. And I think sometimes uh, the other aspects of their work and their ties to the political right get overlooked. Is there an issue where, much like uh, a lobby like APAC, the ADL has been sidling closer and closer to the political right over the years? Absolutely. I think that's the case. Um, the ADL is very driven by its top leadership. So um, I think that the arrival of Jonathan Greenblatt, people sort of expected it to be maybe a, a liberalization because he came out of the Obama administration and he sold ethical water. Um, but in, in fact, it seems increasingly that that even people who work within the ADL are seeing the contradiction between um, positions that the ADL itself is taking, that there is pressure from donors to uh, to move to the right or to not take a, um, you know, not take a civil rights stand on something. And the ADL is um, is going along with it. And one factor that I think we have to understand as part of this is that the billionaire class in the U.S. is growing. It has been growing, right? Like the, the income inequality has been growing. Corporate dominance has been growing. And that means that there's a bigger set of people with just billions of dollars to pump into an organization like the ADL without any accountability to anyone else. And the fact is that, you know, donors like Haim Saban or, um, you know, Adam Milstein or whatever have an enormous, enormous amount of influence on these institutions that get their power from claiming that they represent people. They don't represent people, they represent their donors and the donors are increasingly right wing. Before closing out, what are the ways in which the ADL have stifled dissent over the years? I know that they've been involved with, um, you know, vetting content for YouTube. I'm assuming they're involved with other social media initiatives. Can you speak a little bit to that? I can try. It's not entirely clear because one of the real powerful um, forces that the ADL leverages is the concern that policymakers and institutional administrators have about being anti-Semitic. People don't want to be anti-Semitic. Like I, I don't want them to be anti-Semitic either. But when when they don't have a good sense of what it actually means to be anti-Semitic and they turn to the ADL, to say like, is this anti-Semitic? That's where the ADL is able to shut things down. So they, the ADL's um, sort of methodology on that has been uh, most recently to try and push, for example, colleges or municipalities to adopt policy that says that anti-Zionism or even criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic and amounts to denying the Jewish people self-determination. This is the language of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. Once that's adopted in policy, anything that anybody says, even critiquing the policy itself, gets constructed as anti-Semitic. It's very, very dangerous and very powerful. And the ADL has been pushing that since 2016. Real quick, because I know you have to get going. Uh, do we have any people that were formally involved in the ADL that have spoken out? I mentioned that there was an official at the ADL that is resigned now, but do we have anyone uh, that we can speak about uh, that is, you know, 
given a better insight into the internal workings of the ADL. I know in your article, you mentioned Roy Bullock, who was a spy for the ADL. Can you just speak to that briefly? Well, Roy Bullock is a, a shady character who the ADL hired to infiltrate and spy on um, both progressive organizations and right-wing organizations. And he maintained a huge file of um, of data that he had gathered on organizations from you know, ACT UP to the ACLU to the United Farm Workers, as well as um, white nationalist groups. And they he also arranged to buy an enormous trove of illegally um, <laughs> illegally obtained police files that came from a police unit in San Francisco that was sort of anti-counterculture. And that police unit had been formally disbanded as illegal, unconstitutional, but the files, instead of being destroyed, were bought by the ADL. So yeah, that's Roy Bullock. <laughs> I don't think he ever, he, he was interviewed by the FBI and you can find his testimony online and it is extremely interesting uh, and telling. There are, since then, There's there are always employees who are disgruntled and not disgruntled with the ADL like as employees, but disillusioned or find that they, you know, they joined the ADL to to fight for freedom and, and civil rights. And what in fact is happening is just some, you know, racist and repressive stuff. And they quit and they talk about it. Um, often they stay anonymous because it's the backlash is quite intense, especially in the era of uh, of online doxing, et cetera. But yeah, there are a few. Yeah, and I was just going to mention for people that want to look it up, uh, Stephen Rayo was the one that just resigned as a, a staffer there. Um, in closing, what do you hope listeners get out of the conversation we've been having for the past 20 minutes? And uh, how can we better support civil rights if we don't if we're not going to go with the ADL? Who do we go with? This is the the big question. So the ADL has become and you know it's been the one-stop shop for so many things for so long that it's hard to imagine what how do you replace it. But for example, there are many excellent researchers looking at how white nationalism works. Um there are independent researchers and journalists who are doing this very difficult and and risky work and we can look at them directly. There's absolutely no need to turn to the ADL for that kind of data. Nor is there any need for like the New York Times to say, you know, so-and-so is a white nationalist, according to the ADL. Like, just Google it, man. You don't, you don't need the ADL to validate that somebody has said, you know, racist stuff. As far as who can do um, the work of fighting anti-Semitism, there are lots of organizations that are doing um, solidarity, like anti-racist solidarity work that brings together Jewish and Muslim and Black and queer um, people on principles of justice rather than on principles of just, you know, like policing whoever says something that doesn't sound right. So it's not, there isn't one organization to turn to, and there is no organization that has the history and credibility that the ADL has built, but we have to just, you have to dethrone it because it has built a total, you know, house of, house of smoke and mirrors. I want to cite two references that people can that people can look at if that's helpful. So there is a movement, a campaign called Drop the ADL, which has a website, dropthadl.org. It's a it's got some history on there and a lot of articles. And there's an increasing sort of trove of articles uh, looking more critically at the ADL than ever have before. 200 organizations signed on to that call, including Mi Gente and the Movement for Black Lives. Um, 
Dream Defenders, a whole bunch of other organizations, including Jewish organizations. And the last place I want to direct folks to look is Jewish Currents, which is an online magazine that has done some serious investigative journalism looking at the ADL, which is something that, strangely enough, no other no other newspaper has done, maybe because they don't dare. So Jewish Currents is the place for that research. In that regard, uh, I have a lot of listeners that say they're afraid to speak up right now on issues related to Palestine, uh, what's happening in Gaza. What do you want to say to those listeners who are just thinking, you know, what if I get canceled? What if I lose my job? Um, what do you want to say to people that are fearful of speaking out, you know, and, and uh, speaking their mind on this topic? It gets safer when we all do it. It's, it is risky. There's no question. It's risky. I mean, it's risky to speak out. It's risky to be Palestinian, um, you know, but there's a genocide going on and we don't have the luxury either for our survival or for our for our morality of sitting it out. And one thing we know about Israeli attacks on Palestine is that what happens there gets translated to policing here in the U.S., in North America. So, you know, even if you if it, purely from a self-preservationist perspective, we must intervene. We must stop this because it is not just it's not just flattening Palestine, it's transforming the world into a place where this becomes normalized. So I know it's risky. I know it's hard. You know, give me a call. <laughs> like I'll help you out. But don't don't not speak. Well, hey, Emma, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found informative my conversation with Amaya Gelman. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.